0: And as you're seated, please pray with me. Uh, Lord, we thank you for making yourself known through your word. Lord, we pray that we would uh, again be those who who not only hear it, but 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 those who do it, those who um, receive it deeply into our heart. Let it go to work on us, Lord. Um, Lord, we are um, like Nehemiah; those who need to pray that you would strengthen us. We're weak. I, I felt my weakness profoundly, even in trying to prepare a cogent sermon. Uh, so I'm so grateful for the Spirit who applies the word to the heart. And Lord, we pray that you would um, enable us to receive it with gladness, uh, that it would not only uh, be at work within us, but through us. For the glory of your name, for the good of our neighbors and our friends and the good of the city, Lord, for the, for the advance of the gospel into all the world. Would you do this, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, our, our text starts off with uh, this, this word of being finished. Um, it tells us the wall was finished. And, you know, like many of you, I, I'm in a profession in which finishing is, you know, kind of a rare commodity. I, for me, a sense of completion is, is, is pretty rare. Um, and I think this is why I like mowing the yard <laughs> and I like washing the car. I like cleaning out the garage because, you know, the grass was long and now it's short. You know, the, the car was dirty and now it's clean. Uh, the garage was cluttered and now it's not. I mean, that sense of being finished, sense of completion, right? So here we are, you know, at the end of chapter 6 and it's, it, it feels so satisfying. <laughs> the wall is finished and it is, it is no um, small accomplishment, when you, when you think back of what it took to get here, I mean, Nehemiah had to get permission from the Babylonian emperor, Artaxerxes. Not, not only did he have to get permission, but that permission necessitated that very fearsome emperor reversing his own stated policy and rebuilding Jerusalem. And having secured permission and provisions, then he had to get to Jerusalem. And once he got there and he saw what state it was in, it was was a shambles. And then he had to come up with a plan. And he had to mobilize people to pull it off, which is never an easy thing, right? And throughout it all, he had to contend with vicious opposition of the leaders of the surrounding uh, provinces, but not only them. He had to deal with opposition from his own people. And not only did he have to contend with both external and internal threats, but he had to deal with threats in every conceivable form. Some things that came his way were obvious attacks. It was clear they were intended to do him harm. Some were actually kind of attractive. But in the end, it came down, it came to be seen That everything had been thrown at Nehemiah from ridicule to rumor spreading to intrigue and innuendo to injustice to undermining God's word to, you know, outright intimidation and threats of violence. And so here we are with the wall finished. And and it's really critical to see at this juncture that we're not here because Nehemiah just powered through. He didn't just dig within himself and, you know, tap all of his, you know, determination and leadership skills, right? But he he didn't just power through. He pressed on in prayerful dependence on the Lord, calling upon him in prayer again and again, being anchored to and energized by God's word, by a faith in God in his holy character, in his covenant promises, relying on, as we saw in the very first chapter, verse 5, the Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. And so with that, we've got this wall completed miraculously in 52 days. But here's uh, what I want to see as we get into this. As miraculous an achievement as that is, there is nothing said about Nehemiah's skills as a project manager in making it happen. There's no, there's no fist pumping, there's no high-fiving, there's no you know, turning to Sanbalat and the surrounding provinces and saying, in your face. The, the focus is, in fact, surprisingly entirely on how this project was perceived Not by God's people, but by those who had opposed the work from the start. What did they perceive? It says that when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid, fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Did you notice the three things that struck them? Fear. Falling greatly in their own esteem and the acceptance of a fact that this was not the work of human effort or ingenuity, but it was in fact the work of the, of the Lord and God of Israel, the eternal and gracious God. Now, not to diminish the massive miracle that was the completion of the city wall in, 15, in 52 days, that's a big deal, but this is actually the bigger miracle, Especially when you consider, you know, the goal of the enemies of of Judah and Nehemiah um, to strike fear in their hearts. And now, fear is in their hearts. They're being struck by fear. Their, Their opposition was fueled by the power dynamics of being great in their own esteem. They were convinced that they could unite and thwart the project through all those you know, forms of opposition they threw at Nehemiah, but now wildly, they've fallen in their own esteem. Their great threat was that Nehemiah was trying to set himself up as king with the hopes that getting that narrative out there would turn King Artaxerxes, who everyone knew was the king of kings, against Nehemiah. But now, they are seeing the facts that there's a true and greater king of kings who is with these people, and who has worked in their favor. They are accepting as fact that which has always been true, that this is the work of the Lord. And they conclude that there's no other explanation, no other way to explain it. And and I just want to pause at this juncture in the story just to ask the question, you know, imagine, could Nehemiah have pulled this off in a way other than the way he did? What I mean is, could he have relied upon his position and his personal skills? Could he have relied upon the provisions that were given to him, his connection to people in high places, and still have built the wall? And I want to tell you, absolutely he could have done that. There's all kinds of cities in the realms of Artaxerxes that have walls that were built in exactly that way. Certainly not as quickly, maybe not with the same unity of purpose, probably not without having to mix it up here and there with some of the locals. But Nehemiah went about it differently, not setting aside or despising the resources he'd been endowed with, but he put it all to work prayerfully, dependently, with deep ongoing reliance on the covenant faithfulness of the Lord, always taking on that which was too much for him, so that its only hope for success would be that the Lord would do it. So that's the question. And it's the thing I kind of want to imagine. What if he hadn't done it in the way he did it, full of faith, looking to God's word, with a deep sense of his own weakness and a great apprehension of the strength and the greatness of God? What if it had just been a civil engineering project? Well, I think it's entirely possible he would have ended up with a wall But that's all he would have had. And just for a moment, consider the cost of what that would have meant for his people and for the surrounding nations. He'd have a wall. He'd have a win over his enemies. He might even, you know, get a long wait list of people wanting to enroll in his leadership skills, you know, seminar that we talked about last week. And this would have been seen then and now if any of us would even remember this story as the accomplishment of a great man, but not of a great God. And the surrounding nations would have been robbed of, denied the inestimable gift of, perhaps for the first time ever, glimpsing the truth about themselves and the truth about the God who made them in apprehending a fear that there is a greater power at work than what they can muster out of themselves or conjure from them, their gods, in discovering that no one can secure a life for themselves, and in seeing that there is a great God who not only reigns, but is graciously related to a ruined people, to a weak, scattered, broken people, loving them, caring for them, fighting for them, building for them, making a home for them. And, you know, as I looked at this this week, this is kind of, I don't know about you as you think about this, but this is reorienting and recalibrating the way I think about what we do in church. Like what would happen if we operated not from what we might muster from within ourselves or conjure out of our own resources, but what if we were to prayerfully take on that which we all agree is simply too much for us, but not too much for our sovereign, gracious God and King. What, what, if we in it, what if every endeavor we entered into, we expected just, you know, this is going to be one of two outcomes. It will be spectacular human failure for all to see or spectacular divine success for all to see. The first church in this denomination that I was a part of, uh, you know, I joined in college, not for noble reasons, but because the woman I'm now married to was attending there. Um, They had a motto at that church, and, and it was this. Attempt something so great for God that it is doomed to failure unless he is in it. Attempt something so great for God that it's doomed to failure unless he's in it. And perhaps a question that should be before us is this. What might we not only be denying ourselves, what are we denying Santa Fe, New Mexico? If we don't live and operate in this way, as people relying on the word, clinging to God's promises, certain of our own weakness, confident in the strength of God, endeavoring to see that everything would be his success, and if it's not, it's our failure. I mean, can't we all agree, and again, I have not been here long, I don't want to pretend in a city with the depths and layers of everything. Complex city, all kinds of dimensions to it. I don't want to pretend that I know it as well as I hope to grow to know it. But can't we agree that the last thing Santa Fe needs, the last thing our country needs, the last thing our world needs, is the good news of our leadership skills. Or the good news of our project management. Or the good news of how smart we are. Or the good news of how moral we are. Or, you know, charismatic, not this pastor, but the other pastor is. (laughs) Of how loving we are. That is not good news. There is no life in it. Even though you can build some stuff from it. You might end up with a wall. But there is life in coming to apprehend the Lord's greatness, his love for his people, his care for them, his grace and mercy toward them, his gospel, which is good news for the world, for those who are perishing, and for those who have put their faith in Christ. That is what's beginning to be seen, not just by God's people, but by all the people with the completion of the wall, led by a man who is utterly unconcerned with his own fame, but has a zeal for the fame of God. And yet, even as the wall is complete, uh, the, work, the work isn't. Um, and as we've seen all along, uh, the opposition is right there with the progress. So it's at this point that this guy, Tobiah the Ammonite, who's been a part of the opposition all along, steps up as the leader of it. We don't hear much more about Sanballat from here on out. And in some ways, Tobiah represents a thornier challenge than anything Nehemiah had ever encountered. Uh, And the reason is he has some alliances with Judah's leading families. And, And those families are determined to get Nehemiah to work with Tobiah. Now, nothing's explicitly stated about, you know, why they're so eager for them to work together. It's all a little murky. I would say intentionally so. But it's likely that their concern is that Jerusalem the way it's being built, the way it's being led, has become a little too distinct, a little too differentiated from the neighborhood. And that was beginning to hit the bottom line. It comes to light that Tobiah and the nobles were, were pretty close. They were bound by oath. Not only were they bound by oath, they were other bonds there as well. They were bound by marriage. Verse 18 explains you know, that these families you know, had daughters and sons who, who had married, you know, and so they're, they're getting together at family reunions. You're not just talking about this guy, you know, you're, now you're talking about my brother-in-law, right? And, you know, that's a big deal because in the last, the, la- the very last words, the very last warning of Ezra, who initiated this whole resettlement project, had to do with the disaster that should fall upon Israel should they enter into intermarriage. Now, I want to be really clear because when I hear the word, I don't know about you, when I hear intermarriage as a 21st century American, my mind goes to racial intermarriage. And I want to be very clear, nowhere does the Bible prohibit interracial marriage. Uh, Just one example of many, but Moses was married to a black woman from Cush, from what's now Ethiopia. You can read about that in Numbers 12. So this isn't interracial marriage. The concern here is interfaith marriage, That is to say, unions in which the marital bond is formed, but in such a way that the bond of a common faith is not formed. And because it's not, it can only exist in perpetual conflict, which is why Ezra characterizes, characterizes that kind of marriage as what he calls just simply breaking faith with God. That is to say that you enter into that kind of relationship and you're basically saying my marriage is more important, this union with, with my spouse is more important than my relationship with God. It takes a priority. And people try to sort that out in all kinds of ways, but that's essentially what you're saying. So here we are. Many of Judah's leading citizens, people who ought to be, you know, leaders in the community are doubly bound to Tobiah the Ammonite by oath, by marriage, and predictably, It has created an untenable situation in which loyalties are divided so that it's making serving the Lord and serving my brother-in-law nearly impossible. But that doesn't mean that everyone doesn't want it to work out. And so these leading citizens step in as mediators and they assure Nehemiah, look, yeah, Tobiah doesn't share our faith, but he's a man of good works. He's a good guy. And at first, there's even a little back and forth between them. It seems that Nehemiah's open to having a conversation. But he comes to find that there can be no compromise. And again, even though Tobiah's agenda is never explicitly stated, it seems clear to me, given what we've seen in chapter 5, that these are the very people who represented the internal threat that was coming upon Israel and exploiting the poor. This is the same crowd that was getting rich on the backs of the poor, charging exorbitant interest, repossessing everything. I mean, the list in that chapter was from fields and vineyards and olive orchards and homes and money and grain and wine and oil. And you just go, well, what's left? Except the shirt on my back. They're also the same people who vowed to Nehemiah then that they would stop doing that and that they would restore, they'd return the things that they had repossessed and then they would no longer require anything from them. But now, it seems to be that the attitude is, look, the wall's rebuilt. The city's future looks secure. Can I just get my title loan business going? We're losing money, and we're in this with my brother-in-law, and he's not happy about it. And Nehemiah rejects it, and then it becomes clear that in fact, Tobiah was never a man of compromise. He becomes a source of threats. He writes some threatening letters, as far as we know, from here on out. Now, it seems like the book ought to end there, um, with the wall done and uh, the threats thwarted, Uh, but it doesn't. And it doesn't because God has called Nehemiah to something greater than building a wall, which was always critical, but never the goal. The goal is actually stated in chapter 1. It's not that it would, that, that, uh, it's not about a wall, but it is that the Lord would be attentive to Nehemiah's prayer and be gracious to bring his covenant promise to fruition in such a way that his servants are gathered, that his people whom he has redeemed by his great power and strong hand would be brought to the place that he has chosen. Why? To make his name dwell there. So again, this is a much bigger deal than a civil engineering project. It is a salvation project centered on the Lord, gathering his people for his glory, for their good and for the good of the whole world. And that's why when you flip from chapter six to chapter seven, the focus really shifts from place or project to people. Lots and lots of people. I didn't read something like 64 verses of our passage because, um, and I I would encourage you to go and read it. It, You know, uh, there's no part of Scripture which which will not benefit you, Um, but it is just replete with names and clans and families and fathers and mothers. And and I know how it goes. I mean, you know, when I do my daily, when I do my Bible devotion, and I come to these chapters you know, they look about as exciting and meaningful as my iTunes user's agreement, right? Um, and, and, and even after having read it, read it, you might wonder why trees had to be felled, you know, in order to fill up yet more pages of the Bible, especially since verses 6 through 73 are basically a repeat of Ezra 2. But I want to look at it from another angle and say that it seems to me the fact that God by the Holy Spirit inscripturated this chapter not once but twice in the Bible means maybe we ought to pay attention to it. And in fact, this chapter serves as a critical pivot point, a hinge upon which the entirety of Nehemiah turns. So, so, you know, if you were to give a basic outline of Nehemiah, it, it would be this, something like this. Chapters 1 through 6 account for the restoration of the place of God. Chapters 8 through through 13 account for the restoration of the people of God. With chapter 7 serving as something like the connective tissue, the hinge that brings the two together. And, And that paradigm, you know, when you see it in the Bible, when you see place and people or, you know, theater and thriving you are onto a pattern that was established in creation uh, places and people empty spaces that get filled so that in the creation narrative in the first 3 days you know god is occupied with establishing places with spaces with theaters in which light is separated from darkness day from night water from land sea from skies and then what does he do in chapters 4 through 6 he fills them. He fills the spaces. The theater gets packed. He brings thriving and life to these places. So the heavenly bodies of sun, moon, and stars fill up days and nights. Vegetation proliferates on what had been barren land. Birds fill skies. Fish team in the waters. Creatures populate the land. And then human beings being made in the image of God as the crown of creation. Rule over it all as its steward reflecting the God whom they serve. So this is a picture. What we're seeing here in Nehemiah, in the transition from Nehemiah 6 to Nehemiah 7 with Nehemiah, or to Nehemiah 8 with Nehemiah 7 as the connective tissue is to see a story of new creation, of God's city, of the space being secured and then filled in a chapter that is teeming with people, with life, with names. And this this isn't just any gathering. The critical concern here is that these are people who share a common faith. That's what unites them as a city. That's what makes the city make sense. Nehemiah has gone so far as to pull out the old Ezra 2 genealogy and is scrupulously cross-checking it to make sure that all these people can be verified members of the covenant community. And there's a real concern about in seeking, the, about those who are seeking to be enrolled in the city as priests. And he says basically, when we couldn't verify it from the genealogy, we didn't allow them to be priests. And, you know, even saying that and looking at it, I want to acknowledge something. Uh, and that's that what they're doing here might strike you as the embodiment of the thing that people hate about church, or one of the things. Because it can seem like the work that Nehemiah is doing here, what he's seeking to establish, is a holy huddle. Walled off, backs turned to the community, the community to which they've been called, all while you know congratulating themselves for being a part of God's people, all while patting themselves on the back for being the right kind of people, spiritually superior to everyone, Right? But I think it's quite a different picture than that. While it is certainly undeniable that they are called to be, as they have always been, a distinct people, a differentiated people, a strange people, a peculiar people. I'm just sort of searching all the various terms that are applied, you know, to um, God's people in Scripture. They are certainly called to do that. But because of the character of their God and the nature of their calling. Built into being that kind of person is to be an outwardly directed person. Not living for themselves and the preservation of their faith, but what? A light to the nations, a blessing to the nations, an entryway into relationship with God in such a way that the whole world would come to put their faith in their God and become part of the city. See, God uses the distinctiveness and the differentiation and the beauty of a unified faith and enjoying the good things of God together. Being distinctive and differentiated, he uses that as as the engine for mission. Being distinctive and differentiated and outwardly directed are not a contradiction. They go together. Israel never was an ethnic or a racially defined people. They are a covenant people. A covenant initiated by God, entered into by faith through grace, upheld by God's faithfulness to them. You know, being an Israelite was never a matter of who your father was. It was always a matter of where your faith was. So when God called Abraham, the patriarch of this people, Abraham wasn't looking for God. He hadn't earned his favor. He wasn't from the right kind of people. All he was up to was worshiping idols in Ur. Wherever that is, I think I know, but... And yet, he believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And that became the basis of God's people. A covenant people, a covenant established by grace, through faith. For what purpose? What's the great Abrahamic promise? Not, I will make of you a holy huddle. But that all the families of the earth shall be blessed through you. This is why the Lord reminds his people of their calling and identity periodically. He does it in a way I love in Deuteronomy 7, where he tells them, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God chose you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. There it is, a distinct people, differentiated. But listen to how he continues. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on and chose you for you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord brought you with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God's people, in other words, are a saved by grace through faith people, a call to be a blessing people, a people who can say, it is part of my story that I was in slavery and I've been set free. A light to the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison of those who sit in darkness, as Isaiah puts it. Bringing people out of prison, prison of sin and death. And the way he intends for the calling and mission of his covenant people to play out in caring, not only for his own people, but for bringing good news to the nations, as we got a glimpse of in chapter 6, is all here, I think, and concentrate in Chapter 7. There's a few threads here I want to just sort of pull out. First, he does this through worship. Uh, You see this in verse 1 where Nehemiah does something kind of surprising. Again, the wall is complete, and now it's time to staff it. Uh, And and you'd expect him to staff it with, you know, archers and engineers and sentries and watchmen. And, and of course, he does appoint some gatekeepers, but but right alongside them he appoints, Singers and priests, you know, singers and pastors. And, and you look at that and you go, well, up to this point, I thought Nehemiah was a great leader, but now I think he's the worst HR manager that ever lived. Except for the fact that Nehemiah knows the kind of place he's building. Not merely a city, but a center of worship. That's, that's the point of it. The missiologist Leslie Newbegin says that the church is called to be what he calls the hermeneutic of the gospel. What's a hermeneutic? It's just a key to interpretation. It's a way of understanding something you wouldn't otherwise understand. And that's how God intends for this city to function as a, as a hermeneutic, as a key to interpretation, as a way for the world to understand who God is, what he's doing, and what the good life in him looks like. Like we saw in chapter 6, the beginnings of that, where the nations began to perceive that, that God's at work. I mean, cities kind of work in this way, don't they? I mean, even today, the names of cities are just, you know, shorthand that, that kind of defines the place, right? So I could, just right now, I can just say Paris, Miami, Memphis. And, and your brain probably is thinking something like this, romance, beaches, barbecue right? And God intends for his city to work something like that, you know, to connect the life of the world with life in him through the life of the city and its people, city of worship, a city that has as its highest priority is giving all glory, lot, and honor to the living God, that has a life where they understand what the nations came to understand, that you know, I've fallen in my own estimation. I can't make a life for myself, but I've been given life graciously, right? That, that I've been, that the fearsomeness of the greatness of God has fallen upon me, but this God is gracious, right? Where his word is central. Actually, chapter 8 is entirely dedicated to the centrality of God's word. Where music is central, where singing, where the whole liturgy, which has the focus of giving God, all glory, lot, and honor for seeking out those who are near and far, gathering them together for good things, giving them life by grace. That's how the city's supposed to function. So worship is central to the life of God's people. And as an immediate consequence of that, so is the walk of God's people, living by faith, living in line with God's word. You get a a little vignette of this straight away in verses 2 and 3 when Nehemiah appoints Two leaders who would lead the entirety of the city, would share responsibility for governing, governing it. And he chooses these men to, to exemplify what it looks like to walk with the Lord. He taps Hananiah's brother and Hananiah. Hananiah, of course, was the guy who brought the terrible news about Jerusalem to Nehemiah in the first place. He's clearly a man who has a zeal for the things of God, who is not satisfied with the state of the city and determined that God must do something about it. But also, there's this man, Hananiah, who was appointed as military leader. And, and when you see that, you expect Nehemiah to say something like, well, I appointed a military leader because he's battle-tested or, you know, because he's received the highest military training. But again, there's a surprise here because what Nehemiah says qualifies him to lead is this. He was more faithful and God-fearing than many. And those two characteristics are critical not only to his own life, but critical in leading the life of God's people. So Nehemiah chooses these men so that God's people would be led in the way of faithfulness, that they would entrust their life to the Lord, that they would rely on his will and his word is what's best. Also critical to the life of of God's people is that they would be led in the fear of the Lord, which can sound like a negative thing, but it's a quality identified in Scripture as the beginning of wisdom because it is to take hold of and discover one of the best things you can learn in your life, which is there is a God and I am not he. His is the wisdom, his is the power, the holiness, the justice, the goodness, the truth. Worship is central to God's gracious purpose. Our walk in faithfulness and fear of the Lord is central to God's purpose for his people, but we still haven't touched on why we need this massive list of individuals and clans and families that goes on for 61 more verses in verse seven. And we have to wonder, you know, if it wouldn't have been better to just leave us with the census breakdown in verse 66, uh, that we're told, you know, that the whole community added up to 42,000 people. Sounds good. And, And, you know, when you look at it, let's be honest, does anyone know any of these names? Does anyone care about any of these names? Most of them are lost to history, and and let's be honest, they don't mean much to us. But, But here's what is critical to see. They might mean nothing to us, but each one of them means something to God. Each one of them. Worship matters. Our walk matters. And please hear this. We matter. Each one of us. The Bible is full of lists of names of people because God's heart is for more than the mob. His heart is for more than a faceless crowd. He loves people. He loves people that he has called and knows by name. You know, I've been here almost exactly a year and I've gotta make a confession that one thing that just continually weighs heavy on me, and I'm just gonna make my corporate apology to you all and, and plead for your patience, is the fact that I'm still learning names, and that I, you know that some of you I, you've told me many times, and I and I and I get with you, and I'm like, there it goes again, you know. I still fail in that, and it's and I think it's kind of heavy for me, because there's a world of difference in just being known and then being known by name, right? But here's the good news: um, even though I may forget your name, <laughs> the Lord never will. He knows his people by name, and they know him. And and, and something happens to a person, I think. It's transformative. When they come to know being known with that kind of love, when they realize that they have been known fully, deeply, and have been fully and deeply loved and accepted, that's transformative for your whole life. Yeah, I, I, I think that's kind of core to the human condition. It's like sort of this thing of, I desire so badly to be known, but I'm terrified of it because I think I'm going to get rejected. And the gospel is you are fully and deeply known and fully and eternally accepted and loved. I think of the woman at the well in John 4 who had a profound encounter with Jesus in which she came to discover that he knew all about her, good, bad, and the ugly. She had come to be fully known, but also fully accepted. And then what happens? It's the pattern we're talking about here. She she becomes a missionary. She she runs back to her village, and what she doesn't say is, let me convey convey to you some profound theological truths, or I'm here to tell you that my life has changed, and you all need to straighten up and fly right. She goes back to the village, and she says, come and see a man who told me, all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? She was known to the very depths of her life and embraced with an eternal love by Jesus. We matter to God. We are known by God, not just as a mob, not just as a population, but personally. Our names are known to him. And here's the thing. This is the city the Lord is still building in the church. Nehemiah was at the place of having finished the wall, but, but the work was not yet finished. But his faith was in the God who would come to finish the work. And he has done that in Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus Christ built the city by allowing himself to be torn down on the cross. It was on the cross that he finished the work. He went there as one who had earned what we never could have hoped to earn and fulfilling all the rigors and demands of perfect righteousness before a holy God. And he endured what we could never begin to endure in in bearing the horrific consequences of our sin, which should have fallen on us, but which he took for us and for our salvation. Jesus endured all the threats and the punishments. He earned all that was required by God's law that we might enter into faith, into life by faith through him, in him, through grace. So that those who have put their faith in him have entered the city and have been entrusted with it so that not only we, but those we are with in this city, our friends, our neighbors, and I want to say our enemies, might, be, might become part of it by perceiving that the Lord is a great and gracious God, that he's with us, that he's at work among us and causing us and our neighbors to apprehend the fearsome fullness of the grace of Christ and giving us grace and giving us the great grace of falling in our own estimation and realizing I can't build my own life. Life can't be centered upon me. And seeing that life and thriving is in our great and gracious God who knows everything about us and at the same time has fully embraced us by grace through faith in Jesus. Because of Jesus, we have come to know that we are precious in God's estimation and have been made full citizens of his city, known by name, loved unto eternity. Let's pray. Lord, indeed, you are a great and gracious God. And I'm just reminded of that old spiritual that when we begin to take into view the greatness of the gospel the greatness of your person and your character and of what you have done, Lord, sometimes it makes me tremble. And so, Lord, I confess that I have too often taken these things lightly, but I also want to confess I've taken myself too seriously because I imagine that, you know, through my personal holiness, through my efforts, I I in some way begin to move into making a life for myself, and that is folly as well. And so, Lord, yours is a full salvation, You've done the work and you've endured the terrible consequences for our sin and have given us fullness of life so that we are left with great, great grace, the good life, and a great work to which you have called us so that we can see many, many more come in by faith, having apprehended what you put on display in the gospel of Jesus Christ through your church. Lord, would you do it? Would you cause that to advance in our own hearts and in this city? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.